Welcome to Alfalfa, a free-flowing, irreverent, digestible, somewhat degenerate crypto podcast for all, powered by Collective Shift. Entrepreneurs and investors Armand Asadi, Nick Urbani, Steven Cesaro, and Eric Johansson dive deep into crypto, blockchain, DeFi, NFTs, the metaverse, and Web3, all while layering in the latest in tech, money, and politics, feeding you the alpha you need to grow. Make sure to check out CollectiveShift.io for crypto insights and alerts and use code ALFALFA for 50% off your first month. A friendly but serious reminder, this is not financial advice and is for entertainment only. Do your own research. Also, please subscribe to the show and tell your DGEN friends all about us. Now let us begin. Welcome everyone to Alpha Alpha. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for spending your time with us. We're happy to have you here. Quick housekeeping notes. Hop in the Discord. A lot of you've been hopping in there. We have some good discussions amongst us and there. We'd love for you to join in there. And then of course, uh, check out our friends at Collective Shift. Use code Alpha Alpha if you want to check them out and get an extra discount. So got a lot of stuff to talk about, a lot of stuff going on in the world. We're going to talk a little bit of... Um, real estate, some alternative investments. We're going to um, talk about some of the maybe a little macro, maybe some of the culture stuff going on, and then hit on goal setting uh, near the end if we can speed through everything. Um, but let's uh, go through the alpha round real quick. So I'll, I'll kick it off. I just had a few simple uh, trades I made. I bought a, another MFR. Um, it's already down. So we're great. We're feeling good about it. Um, but yeah, part of the kind of multi-year hold uh, portfolio for some of these NFTs, very crypto native one. So hopefully that thing, uh, you know, uh, beats out ETH over the next couple of years. We'll see how it goes. And then, um, I sold some altcoins. Those things are going to like clearly bleed in the near term. So, uh, two, three days ago, sold some leftover link and Matic that I had over that, um, you know, was holding on. And then I was like, you know what, this thing's going to bleed anyway. Um, so just, just sell it, whatever pay taxes on the profits and then, um, you know, keep it in stables and, and just keep it on the sidelines until, uh, things feel safe. So we'll see, see that how it goes, but those are my trades for the week. Um, Oh yeah. Well, another good one was we, uh, we qualified for the ARP, uh, optimism airdrop. Um, that oh, was that's right. we, we had talked about in, in our <sighs> discord and our chats to, uh, bridge over to optimism. Um, yes, <laughs> Stephen. How many wallets did you start to set up and then not set up? Did you? I not? set up fifteen wallets and I approved them all for like the bridge <laughs> transaction. Like I just went through and boom, boom, boom. I was like, I'll cycle through them, and I don't know what happened. I forgot about it. Like, <laughs> I have like fifteen wallets that just approve the token for transfer for the bridge. Never bridged. I ended up getting the airdrop on like one wallet for the the bare minimum. Uh, really just a disaster. I, I I saw that it looks like the biggest people got like 35,000 tokens. 35,000. Yeah. 35,000. And it's probably going to trade for one to $2, I think, depending on how nuclear we go. Yeah. Cool. And that just, that just hurts, right? Because you think about it, like how hard would it have been to really just set up a hundred wallets and, do the transactions and vote. And it's, vote it's and pretty hard. I mean, <laughs> it's pretty hard to actually sit there and do it. I, I did it on five and, you know, got them, but is it, is it $3 million hard? <laughs> it's well, not, so no. Stephen, the whole reason we embarked on this was like, you know, probably the easiest way you want to make a million dollars. If you just like 
grind through setting up a hundred wallets on optimism or some of these layer twos and assume they're going to do an airdrop a year later. And, uh, anyway, I got through like 16 of them. So we'll see how that pans out. Um, well, to, to, to be fair to myself, <laughs> like I w- felt very strongly in the back of my head that this wasn't just going to be some super dumb, just rain cash on people for no reason airdrop. Like I think that meta passed, like I, I kind of knew they were going to do something a little more intricate. Um, I think it's unrealistic to think that any of us were going to like go vote on proposals and all of our wallets or whatever all the other uh, <laughs> all the other things were. Um, but it, it was probably realistic to get like about fifteen hundred dollars worth of tokens per wallet. I guess. Yeah. Which, so um, still probably still probably should have done on a hundred wallets. I think, but I, I think I'm, it's getting pretty close to the uh, the the hourly break even. Yeah. Um, anyway, encourage people to go check it out. Go check out Optimism on Twitter. They'll give you the um, breakdowns of how the airdrop happened. Probably some innovative stuff for future airdrops, I'd imagine. And they also did come up with creative structure, kind of like two houses of, gover- of government for their governance, which is pretty interesting. So, so Eric, you 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 know dug in the airdrop. That was part of your your week. Anything else to kind of report on for the week? Yeah, I'm staying comfy in my shorts. But the the funnier thing that I had was like this mental breakdown on. Uh, on NFTs. I just got really pissed off at NFTs, how I'm seeing the same freaking project over and over and over again, just recycled with a new animal or a new whatever. And I got so frustrated by it that I don't want to, I'm in a point where I don't even want to talk about NFTs. I don't want to hear about them. I don't want to, I don't want to see them in my feed. And now I follow all these NFT influencers and they're all over my feed. And I just, I, I lost my mind thinking about these NFTs and I can't reconcile how JPEGs are still maintaining their value when like all risk assets are just dying. Did you rage unfollow? Did you go through like a rage <laughs> unfollow just, fit? I mean, <laughs> JPEGs really aren't maintaining value though, right? There's just like it's one like, or it's two just projects moonbirds. really. And it's just Moonbirds and- uh, It's just yeah. Moonbirds and, and, and Ape, yeah. the Ape ecosystem basically. Yeah. I mean, there's there's a few things here and there that have that have gotten hot. So now they're going to come out with the, the like land, crazy. the land sale for Ape, ApeCoin land sales coming out on Saturday. And I'm like pissed off about that because I know that nothing's going to happen for years with this with this actual metaverse and like nothing changes. It's it's so stupid, all this. I feel I feel your pain. I've I've definitely grown a little disillusioned myself. I flip through Twitter now and like all I see, all I can see is just people shilling their book and it's just full of people who quite frankly don't really know what the hell they're talking about. There's like one guy who's actually saying something useful for every hundred people in my feed. Everybody's just shilling some dumb... <laughs> like pixelated animal. Some dumb copy uh, project. Yeah. But anyways... It's pretty anyway. rough out there. I mean, this this is like this is new markets, though, right? You you get this hype phase, everything goes up like a million percent, and then there's this realization that one out of a hundred or one out of a thousand, maybe, of everything that is in existence at the moment is it actually has a chance of long term survival. And even though you everybody knows that the industry is going to be something there's kind of like this realization that like it's actually now turned into this like pvp game where everybody's just kind of trying to dump on each other right now there there, there's no there's no net new money coming into crypto 
right now. Not right, right now. So yeah. NFTs yeah. especially is just this like game of people recycling ETH and playing hot potato and trying to like one up one another just to get more get more ETH. Really, it's all going to um, be seen so obvious in about two years. Yeah, we're, what this we're, we're little all gonna, we're all gonna section make it was. Is, is 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 a dead meme. I, I also realized this week that we're all going to make it's not even a crypto meme. So I'm just I'm just at peak uh peak peak crypto depression right now. I so think after what is after uh what is, what is Nihilus Steven doing his uh week? Any uh trades? Well, like, I mean, you'll you'll recall the last couple of weeks I've just been you know searching under my couch cushions for more altcoins <laughs> to sell, and I, I I ran out of altcoins to sell, and then. You know, I, I was still pretty bearish. Uh, I just started borrowing altcoins that I didn't have and then selling them. Um, so that's like the... So you weren't short basically on some... Yeah, I think... Um, and I know this is a big reversal for me like a couple months ago, but I think one of the one of the greatest shorts out there has been Phantom for reasons that are a little complex. I mean, there's this Ponzi coin on Phantom Tomb that maybe you guys have heard of, but it's just, I don't want to go into too many details on it, but it's got this like Ponzi mechanic where it basically is, in my opinion, just sucking all of the liquidity out of Phantom. So all of the upward movements of Phantom, I think are kind of sucked out by the Ponzi mechanics of this coin. It's like a vampire coin, basically. So whenever number go up, all the value kind of goes to tomb. And then when number goes down, like the price goes down, right? So for me, it's this like, plus, you know, obviously Andre left the ecosystem and just caused like a mass devastation. So it's like this interesting situation for me where it's, it's really easy to get a lot of the coin and borrow it. And there's like a lot of utility to, to do in the ecosystem. Um, but I think a funny trade right now is to just, you know, put ETH, like if you don't want to sell your ETH, put ETH into Aave or, you know, if you're on Phantom Scream or whatever the, the lending platform or the chain is, um, you can borrow these kind of crappy coins, which are just going to continue to get annihilated if we're bearish, sell them, and then just put them into a better Ponzi, you know, anchor or uh, bridge them over to uh, the near ecosystem, participate in USDN. There's, there's an, it's such a crazy environment right now, right? Like the world is going to hell and it feels like nothing is investable. But at the same time, we have like all of these like massive stable coin yields everywhere still. I know, I know this has been a topic we've, we've talked about, but it's just, it's really hard for me to to buy anything, right? And especially when you talk about the idea that you could just you just sell these sell these shit coins and then and then and then get more stables and put more stables into the into the twenty percent anchor. You know, it's I'm having a hard time justifying doing anything else right now. And it's 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 really hard for me to get excited about new projects and everything because I know it just it just doesn't really matter if. The Nasdaq's not going up, you know. Like until the Nasdaq goes up, I think we're just we're just sort of like Goblin Town until. Yeah. Well, when is that going to happen, Stephen? <laughs> you posted <laughs> a lot a of charts question. in the Discord. Um, I did some key levels to like I take did. a look at. I so. mean, yesterday we lost a pretty big level that everybody was watching, and today it looked like we were going to kind of take some back and then the whole day reversed and we ended up closing lower today. Um, I was actually astounded at, at the, the strength Bitcoin had today in the face of that, because it, it just looks like we're in complete free fall uh, right now. Of course, I think everybody's like looking at a chart and thinking the same 
thing, right? So it's, it's wouldn't be the first time one of these patterns just sort of like head faked everybody and grabbed some liquidity and went the exact opposite direction. I, I'm like so hesitant to be really bearish because I think everybody's bearish, right? Like who's bullish right now? Totally. And well, it feels weird being on the same side as everybody else. But, but, but at the same time, Jesus, I'm like struggling to look for a good narrative other than quote unquote, the market has already digested the hikes. They're already priced in and everybody's bearish. That seems to be the extent of everybody's narratives, but like, I don't, <laughs> I don't know if that's a good. So let's get into case. yeah. Maybe we'll get into more macro stuff too after um, you know we get into like policy talk because there's certainly like a lot of Fed policy that influences a lot of the macro discussion. And I think there's some good chats to have there. Like will will uh, Powell turn into Volcker and and you know raise us all into hell? Um, so let's talk about that in a bit. Um, you know, one of the big things that you know we've been talking about is obviously interest rates rising. And we mostly talk about crypto on this podcast because we think it's the best risk return that you have available over the next decade plus. Um, but we did want to bring in a little bit of um, real estate um, because it it might be seen, some people see it as a hedge against uh, you know inflation and and rising interest rates. So we can talk about a little. Um, I've had experience with it. It's it's the largest kind of asset class in, in my portfolio um, in terms of you know stocks and um, real estate, crypto. It's it's my largest holding. So basically, what I'm going to do is kind of share some some numbers and and kind of pros and cons, and we can talk about it, and then uh, we can kind of tail into some of the more macro stuff later. But. Um, the thing I've been doing for the last seven years is a very specific type of real estate investing. So, you know, there is all types of real estate investing. There's single family homes, there's, um, you know, uh, Airbnbs, things like that. What I've been doing is multifamily in storage unit investing as a limited partner. And so the big key is that as a limited partner, so that means there's a general partner, someone else who is sourcing the deals, putting the deals together, and then offering it as uh, an investment opportunity. And they're doing it uh, property by property. So they will say, hey, here's this uh, you know, 200 unit apartment complex. Here's the business plan for it. Do you want to invest in it? And they'll go out and raise money from say a thousand limited partners. So usually a small P in this bigger pie, um, but uh, playing as a limited partner is the, the very specific kind of focus I've, I've um, done on these. And so I'm going to start off with the returns because I think that's maybe where the the hook is and then we can kind of go into the pros and cons of it all. Yeah, so I've been doing money. this. Yeah, let's talk about it. So I've been doing it for seven years and I'm going to list off some of the um, total annual returns. So this includes the cash flow, the appreciation, et cetera, and we can dive into it later. So um, here's a handful of deals. I'm just looking at one of my spreadsheets. Uh, 41%, 83%, 52%, 21%, 23%, 62%, 18%. 34, 44, 20, 79, 16, 114%. And so those are oh, wait, annual. Did you say those are your annualized returns? Annual returns. And so Let's keep go. in mind, those are based on, those are not like compounding returns like you see in the stock market or in crypto, right? That's off your initial investment that you made however many years later. So if you put in a hundred bucks, that return is calculated off that original hundred bucks. It's not like in the uh, stock market where you, you compound. Wait, are you are you quoting like an IRR though on that? No, or it's just that like just your. That's just like, your return in aggregate. Uh, no, not in aggregate. It's your annual return, and it's not necessarily an IRR, but it's like 
if you put in a hundred bucks and you've, uh, you know, received 40 bucks over four years, you're at a 10% annual return. So, um, you know, some of these deals have, uh, you know, produced pretty large returns. Some of them have been pretty, pretty stable on the low end. We're seeing like 16% annual return on the high end, 114%. Okay, could you return. tell me how to make 114% annually in real estate, sir? Because uh... <laughs> yeah. So okay. So let's let's dive into like what these things are and where the pros and cons are. So specifically, this is multifamily real estate. So what we're talking about is apartment complexes, right? Uh, where you acquire a primary com- apartment complex, you might do some value add things like when people leave their their unit, you go and make improvements to the kitchen, the bathrooms, maybe the common areas like the pool area, and then you increase the rents. And you can increase the rents every year, maybe because just rent prices are, you know, market is increasing, or maybe you increase rents because you actually improve the value of the units. They're they're more valuable because they have nicer kitchen appliances, for example. So the the return comes in two two factors for these deals. They come in the, the cash on cash that you get, the, the, the rent checks, essentially whatever profits left over, and they typically get paid out quarterly. And then you get the appreciation that happens over time. Basically the value in the property that goes up if you would sell. Um, and so let's go through some of the um, some of the benefits. And I think the best one to go over the pros of this model is the tax. So the US tax code in particular is, I'm not sure which came first. If the tax code was made for these investments, or these investments happen and then you know there's enough lobbying and now some of the tax code is just made for the people who've invested in these in these vehicles but there's two things that make this one of the most tax friendly investments you can do one is depreciation so whenever you buy an asset you get to depreciate that and what that means is you get to write off the value of that property and how it depreciates over time against your profits and so for example uh, apartment complexes, I think the, the the useful life of an apartment complex, something like 29 and a half years, let's call it 30 years. So you get to take the value of that property and take one thirtieth of it every year and write it as an expense. No cash came out of your pocket. It's just, it got less valuable because you know uh, wood, concrete, all the materials that go in there, they, they kind of depreciate and get less valuable over time as they get used. So depreciation is, is a big one. Um, and typically what you'll see, and we'll talk about in the cash flow section, is that the depreciation often cancels out your cash flow. So you're not paying taxes on the cash flow. It's often greater. So we'll talk about in a second. Um, so are your are your returns like tax adjusted or are those your returns before so, factory? Yeah, basically <laughs> what I'm getting to is that they're basically uh, net of tax because there is no tax. So for example, if you're... Um, yielding, let's say 7% cash on cash. Uh, the beauties of the tax code allow you to depreciate the value of your property, you know, uh, you know, one thirtieth every year. But then there's additional benefits where you can accelerate the depreciation. So let's say you're going to invest in an apartment complex. You're not going to probably hold it for 30 years. You might hold it for seven years or 10 years. And the tax code allows you to accelerate depreciation. So everything has a different depreciation schedule. So the sidewalks have a uh, their own schedule versus, um, you know, lighting fixtures and the the raw land that it sits under. So everything has a different schedule, and the tax code allows you to accelerate the depreciation. So if anyone is listening that has owned a business before, they know that the tax form that you get at the end of the year is a K one. It shows your ownership percentage interest and your 
uh, profit or loss. And so you get these in these um, multifamily uh, limited partner deals. You actually own a percentage of the LLC that operates the, the property. And oftentimes you'll see a negative on there, which is a good thing. So on a tax basis, you lost money because even though you got paid out, say 7% cash on cash that year, the depreciation is often a lot greater than the cash flow. So you're showing a negative on your tax returns. So there's no tax to pay um, on the cash flow. And then Stephen, to your point, the second item of where the tax code really benefits uh, real estate holders, and in particular, multifamily real estate holders, is the 1031 exchange. So um, you can, once you sell a uh, stake in a real estate or sell a property, you can then roll it into a new property um, without paying taxes. And there are all kinds of like restrictions and, and time, time limitations. You only have so many days to take that cash that you made from selling your property and roll it into the next one. Um, but that is the big thing where you could take your profits from selling an apartment complex and roll into the next one without paying taxes. So one thing to summarize this, this portion of this discussion is the strategy is to um, invest 1031 and then die. So <laughs> never, you know, like, never take the tax, never sell. Like right. basically just keep rolling it into the next deal, never pay the tax and, you know, uh, leveling up um, every time that you sell. Hopefully it's like a, maybe you um, have an 80% return on your uh, appreciation. Maybe you have a lot greater than that. Let's say you put in hundred K, maybe by the time you sell, it's worth 200 K and you take that 200 K and you roll into the next deal and roll into the next deal and just keep doing that until you die. And then, you know, when, once you're dead, you're, your little uh, trust or will can decide where that money in real estate goes. And effectively, I don't really know other than moving to some tax, you know, uh, free area of the world, does the, the tax code allow for you to actually earn profits and appreciation without ever paying taxes in your lifetime? So Stephen, uh, yeah, I mean, these are essentially what, you know, they're gross, they're pre-tax and post-tax yields is what we're looking for. And so I think right. when we get to the end of this discussion, it'd be good for us to kind of compare stablecoin yields and you know which which compares. Because there are obviously some downsides to this type of, of real estate, which we'll get into. Illiquidity. So, big one. That's the biggest one we're going to talk about for sure. Wait, can I can I get a little more clear? So, so what is what is like your average return on your portfolio and like what is like sort of like the average time you've been in these deals? Right. So everything. Um, I've been investing for since uh, 2015, so seven years ago. And in that time, one property has only actually sold. So the rest have been holding this whole time. And in that, that, that for example, that one property returned an annual return of 41%. Um, it was a- well, you, 90- you don't need to sell it though to figure out what the return is, right? Obviously, no. you can- Market. You mark to market and everything, right? Yeah. I guess I'm yeah. I'm confused about that. Like, so when the when the property appreciates, but you never sell it, like, how do you actually capture any value? Like, you, you so there's you two could, ways. You could uh, take equity loans out so to buy more property, right? So yeah. So the next point I was going to talk about, we get to say, essentially, you could refinance. So imagine the 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 apartment complex like a business. If you increase net operating income, it is now worth more. You go back to the bank and pull more money out. So we talk about that. And then really to your point, Eric, you really don't benefit until you potentially sell it and roll it into the next deal. So, you know, there's one deal 
It was a $90,000 investment. It had a 41% annual return. I forget when I bought it, but, or when I invested in it, but it turned into like a, call it like, I don't have the number in front of me, but like 230K uh, at the end. And and they sent me an email saying, listen, if you want, we'll send you the cash. And then you're going to have to pay taxes on your gain. And here's what we estimate your rough, you know, tax bill to be, or we have set up another deal. If you'd like to participate in a 1031, pay no taxes, roll the rest of it into, um, you know, the next investment. And so the annual return, you know, average return, I don't, I didn't do the like weighted average return, but let's call it like mid, mid thirties percent annual return. But Derek's point, you don't feel it, right? Like you're not getting 30%, you know, in your bank account every year. It's in this very illiquid locked up uh, dollar amount that is in an Excel spreadsheet and you know, it's increased in value and, you know, there's potential to, to capture that either in a sale and rolling into the next deal or to refinance. Um, Has there ever been a situation where you 1031 and the, and the value goes down? Like you take a bad trade, like on a 1031. So there's a lot of definitely like, if you go on like, uh, you know, I obviously follow people on crypto Twitter, but there's a whole uh, community of real estate Twitter people. And, you know, let's say the biggest suckers uh, in the market are Californians 1031 into new properties, right? Because Californians have one of the highest tax rates. And, you know, you basically face the decision of like, okay, we need to find a new property in X amount of days or else we're all going to get taxed and we don't want that. So oftentimes, I don't think you end up with the most optimal uh, next investment. Like, I think this next investment, we went from cash flowing like 7% to like 5.5%. So it's kind of a low cash on cash, but it's appreciated in value. It's done well over the last year that we've we've held it. Um, but yeah, so you can kind of end up in a new property that doesn't perform as well. But if you live in a high tax state, you could be like, well, it was still better to not um, to not pay the taxes on it. Um, so there is definitely like this uh, need, and probably where you could find a not so great property, but it satisfied your need for your investors to like, make sure they don't pay taxes, which some of these might be on like the fifth 1031. I know, and but if it, you, it, it shows me you need a good operator. You need a good GP. Totally. And so, you know, we'll, we'll talk about like, what are the the downsides of this? And, and a lot of it is like being a credit investor and finding, finding these deals. Um, so the second pro was what we kind of just touched on, which is let, uh, refinance opportunities. So uh, basically, most of these deals operate on 65% leverage. So they're taking out a 65% loan to the value of the property. And you talk about like degenerate, uh, you know, things that people do in crypto, but real estate is where, you know, single family homes operate on a 80% loan to value and, and multifamily typically operates in like a, called like a 65% loan to value. And so when you have that leverage, if you increase the net operating income of the property, let's say you double it, you can now, and your loan to value goes say to like 35%, you go to the bank and be like, hey, I want to re-up. I want to go from 35% loan to value back up to 65%. And they'll say, here, here's your additional loan uh, based on the value, increased value of this property. And what oftentimes comes back is they distribute that immediately back to the investors. So in some of these deals, I've received anywhere from 30 to 90% of the cash back tax-free because it's not actual profit. It's actually an additional loan on the property. And um, I've used that to invest in the next deal. 
Um, so some of these deals were essentially free by taking leverage on, on previous properties. And um, you don't have that ability in a lot of other types of investments. And I'd say they only typically come in kind of lowering interest rate environments, obviously, because, you, oh no, um, you can, uh, you know, those, those kind of come up when interest rates are, are decreasing. Um, but when interest rates are, in, you know, increasing, it's, it's tough to say, hey, I want to refinance at a higher interest rate. But if you have a good operator, to your point, Eric, where it um, increases operating income, then, you know, regardless of interest rates, you have the ability to refinance. Cool. So we we've covered the the refinance opportunities that that real estate obviously has some leverage, sixty five percent leverage, and you have the opportunity to refinance cash out, use it for whatever you want, or uh, you know throw it into the next deal. The biggest one that most people want to know about is the cash flow. And so we mentioned those annual returns, right? And there, there's some like really good big numbers, but it's not like there's a bunch of money sitting in in, in a bank account that you can actually use because it's locked up in this hard asset, you know, typically an apartment complex, but the cash you are able to use is the, the quarterly, you know, uh, profits that get sent. And so the cash on cash, you know, typically might start anywhere from like five to six to 7% in the first year, and then kind of escalate from there. Some of them have been home runs and are, you know, cashing, cash flowing like 12% plus a year. Um, but I think the benefit is is that you can actually spend that money. So back to what we talked about, the tax advantages, the depreciation gets written off against those profits. So that's actually tax-free money that you can use. And so when comparing against like say stable coin yields, if you can achieve like a 7% cash on cash and the, the, the pre-tax equivalent of that's probably something like 12%. So um, it's a good benchmark to use against other assets. Um, but anyway, that's typically the, the cash flow uh, component, the, the ranges of, of rates you get to see. Um, and then the idea is that you know you kind of replace your active income, your whatever you use for employment income, a salary or distributions from a business, and replace it with this passive income. And there's a lot of things that um, you know people call passive income, but I truly call this you know true passive income. One of the benefits pros I have is like return on time. Um, so you know, as a limited partner, you don't do anything. In fact, you can't make any decisions around it. So every quarter you get an update um, and you might spend 20 minutes updating a spreadsheet that you have. And outside of that, there's not really much time you have to spend on it past evaluating whether you're going to invest it or not. So for a return on time investment, I think it's one of the best out there, probably spend, you know, four hours a year on, um, on just kind of like updating numbers and seeing how these things are doing. So, um, that cash flow is is what I'd uh, withhold for only the rarest type. I should call it a passive investment. And is the last the, is is the real alpha in here just to uh, find a good operator and just give them money. Most definitely. I mean, like, <laughs> <laughs> so, so how do we do that? I mean, like, because I'm, I'm guessing on. I'm guessing people can't just throw money into uh, multifamilies and make a hundred percent, right? No, no, we'll we'll talk about that in a second because that's definitely yeah. one of the biggest cons. Because um, I would love is- th- th- this is a struggle <laughs> of, of of me as a as a potential audience member and a person who's curious about this. Yeah, um, I mean, you're invested in real estate, but you're essentially the GP. You're the guy, you know, who's uh, part of managing the property um, or properties. 
So um, real quick to cap off the, the pros, obviously the appreciation and the biggest appreciation is kind of, you know, from what I've seen has happened in the last year when this asset class has just been a big favorite of, of the market uh, because it's often seen as a hedge against inflation to own a hard asset that cash flows that you can in- increase the net operating income of. So the appreciation is definitely the, the majority of those gains that we mentioned prior. Um, but you don't really see them until you roll them into the next one or you have a potential refinance. So let's go into cons because this is where I think it's important for people to understand. Number one, you don't have a control as a limited partner. You can't decide to sell the property, refinance, raise rents. That's all up to the general partner that that you choose. Um, and it's also a blessing, right? Because you don't have to do those things. But if you want your money back, a lot of general partners might say, good luck. Like we're not we're not giving you your money back. It's tied up in this asset. And so there's a lot of usual disclaimers that you sign up to when you get involved in these are like you basically acknowledging that you don't have control of this and you can't get your money back. And it's not up to you when you get your money back. And illiquidity, I think is the biggest risk of this. So if you need the money, there's no market that you can go to, to say, Hey, does anyone want to buy my shares in this place? Um, although, you know, there's like initial talks of like fanciful ideas of like tokenizing uh, among for for limited partners, so they can you know have a free market to get in and out of these deals. But I think that's like fanciful at best and and very far off. Um, so, you know, if you're looking to buy a home, for example, a bank does not consider this part of your assets because it's not something they can go and take if you default on a loan. So if you're going to get a mortgage on a first home that you want to live in. They don't count it. They'll count the cash flow as part of your income, but they won't uh, incorporate the asset value as part of your net worth that they can potentially take if you default. And which leads us to like the biggest one, which is um, the last one, the biggest con is like the regulatory uh, barrier. So you typically have to be an accredited investor, um, in which US has certain uh, minimums. And you know, personally, I think they're kind of bullshit that um, we kind of only let certain types of, of people and investors invest in these deals, considering they're some of the uh, best, I think, investments out there, especially over a lifetime to accumulate wealth. Um, and they have some some higher minimums, right? You can't get in for, for a few thousand dollars. Um, although if the accredited investor um, you know, rules went away, I'd imagine that some general partners would be open to letting in you know, smaller amounts in um, for, for minimums. So um, yeah, to your point, Stephen, you do got to find good general partners. Typically what you want to look for is like partners that have been through multiple cycles that have been through a crash before have never asked their partners for a, you know, a capital call. Remember uh, as being, being able to get part of that appreciation and getting that K1 means you are an owner of this company. And if the company needs more money because it's in a bad shape, in order to maintain your percentage allocation ownership of that company, you may have to do a capital call and put more money in to save the property, provide it capital while it, it, it kind of gets back to a good place. Um, but you want to find general partners that have been through those times have never uh, you know, asked for a capital call. Um, and so there's a bunch of other guidance that we could probably talk later in the Discord about like what, what it takes to find a good general partner. And there's all kinds of rules. And I've definitely talked to 25 plus of these over the last seven years. And I'm always looking for, for good ones. And, you know, main criteria is like, are they going to offer like a 1031 opportunity if, if they sell? 
because you want to at least have that, that opportunity to, to look at. So, um, we can talk about this a little more, but I think like if anyone has any questions or, you know, wants introductions to people in the U S who have, you know, good as good general partners, definitely have, uh, filtered out quite a bit and can, uh, shoot those over in the discord. So anything else we want to go over, uh, in terms of real estate are these, questions, are these deals, like when a new deal comes through, are they pretty oversubscribed or are you guys like fighting each other to like, uh, get your money in? How do, how does it typically work? It's, it's surprising, you know, like I'm in, I'm in internet marketing and like, you know, people talk about the value of an email list. Well, these guys have the most valuable email list because they might raise like $30 million off their very small list of uh, accredited investors. And I remember the first deal I did, the the investment wrapped up in two days. They raised tens of millions of dollars in two days. And, you know, when you're first getting into this, it's, it's a lot of money to be able to allocate. And you're like, I, I haven't even read the business plan in two days. Like, I don't even know if this is a good investment. But yeah, typically, um, I'd say majority of them uh, within, let's call it three to five business days are fully subscribed, if not oversubscribed by then. We've even had scenarios where you commit capital and then they end up saying, hey, you committed X amount. Well, we need to decrease that because we were oversubscribed. So we're going to decrease how much you can actually put in. And a lot of them have caps because of they want to you know, allow the most amount of investors to get in these deals. So that's typically you know, what you see in terms of supply demand, especially in, in this type of uh, macro, you know, economic environment. Nice. How much of your return do you think is because you luck box just like a giant wave of real estate appreciation, which is probably not sustainable? Well, I would say like, it's certainly a little bit of luck, but over seven years, I, I feel good about it. And I definitely think about long-term, like if you're going to do this for the next, until you die, you know, for the next, hopefully like 60 years plus, there are definitely some things to consider, right? <clears throat> Do you think uh, apartments will increase in value? And there's some short-term things that really help it. For example, the shortage in single family homes and the unaffordability of single family homes, which kind of forces people to, to rent. We have a whole generation of millennials who can't afford homes and maybe had this like failure to launch uh, symptom. So they're, they were either living with their parents or living with in, in apartments. And so that's definitely like a, a shorter term uh, bias. The biggest longer term risk I see is just demographics, like population decline, like us not having as many babies in the US. And then you also see like limiting immigration. And so you, you typically need three things for apartments to be successful. You need um, population growth, you need uh, employment, job growth, and you need wage growth are the three things that typically move rents up over long periods of time. And so if we ever see over a multiple decade period where population growth declines, assuming that how, you know, single family home housing eventually catches up, then you could face like a, um, you know, call like a deflationary environment for like apartment complexes, for example. And this, you know, maybe storage units play, play a little bit in that, but they probably face the same long term tail or, you know, headwinds. Any, any risk of like regulatory changes in the tax code? Yeah. I mean, uh, the biggest one that's come up and it comes up often a lot in uh, budgets is um, limiting the 1031 exchange, right? So that's one that's currently in Biden's budget, but that budget has to get you know taken by Congress to say, okay, Mr. President, we see that this is a priority and how you're going to pay for um, some of your spending plans. You're going to limit the 1031 exchange so that people cannot take advantage of this. 
but typically it, it's come up multiple times over the last you know decade or so, and they usually don't even get turned into legislation. If they get turned into legislation, they they never really uh, live on to actually see being passed as a bill. So I think the current one is if you're making over five hundred thousand dollars a year, you're you will not be allowed to ten thirty one and take advantage of that of that. So you still have a lot of leeway as like an individual to still 1031, uh, according to Biden's current proposal. But, you know, I've certainly talked about it with general partners and they don't see it as like a high probability for this thing to actually get cemented into law. So we'll see, you know, for one thing, at least Trump was an apartment owner. Uh, you know, he had, well, it does help you that like the, uh, the people that make the rules tend to be also the, the owning class, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's a lot of people in the U S who own real estate, they're their own home, which 1031 laws uh, apply to. So I think uh, you typically see that represented in Congress too. So um, I don't think anyone's surprised how little kill we their own hear bags. about real estate loopholes. It seems like everybody's just uh, hating on the billionaires all the time. Yeah, they're they're easy targets, but you know, um, no one it's talks about crazy. Sam you Zell. Just, you just have this entire asset class that's basically just uh, concierge tax protected. I think it's because um, the boomer generation, everyone was like a homeowner, and and now the proletariat is going to be a renting class, and we'll hear about it more going forward. Yeah. Um. Okay. Yeah. I mean, great strat. Great strategy. Just lock everybody out of housing and then just give the uh, all the tax benefits to the owners and then uh, <laughs> charge everybody wild rent. I love it. Yeah, we'll say like, you know, beyond what being in real estate, like being a homeowner, particularly in the last like year and a half has been amazing. Like you kind of love the Fed right now because um, they're just, you know, inflating your or appreciating your, your asset. To the moon. I mean, my, uh, my renters house is are getting up screwed. Twenty percent already, I think. That's not, hasn't even been a year yet. Actually, it's up more. What the hell? <laughs> I'm looking at the Zillow. Is your purchasing thing. power up? It's up or like down. twenty-five. Yeah, it's up twenty-five percent in under a year. That's, That's great. And you paid shitty bitcoins for it. <laughs> <sighs> Unfortunately, I think we're kind of worried we're going to have a. A bit of a crash on our hands here in real so, estate. Do do we want to get a little macro talk in this next section? Uh, we got there's like a bunch of stuff we could talk about here. We could talk about Elon actually buying Twitter, not potentially buying it. Talk about board ape land sale, macro stuff. Libs of TikTok was like a potential mm. candidate. What's feeling spiciest, Stephen? Lots to talk about. I mean, I want to hear first if you think that uh, real estate is going to go through the same path that we've seen in like equities. Um. Uh, I mean, so there, there was this um, article that came out and I sent it to a friend because I was like, this could be the start. So I think it was Wells Fargo just laid off 500 mortgage processors um, and you have uh, mortgage, 30-year mortgage rates tipping over 5%. So you know, Wells Fargo is basically saying, we're not going to have as many new mortgages because interest rates are so high. So we got to get rid of these people ahead of time. And that might be the first headline. Are they, are, I heard an interesting countertake that was that um, it's not that like mortgage demand is going down. It's just there's no inventory. So no, there's there's lower transaction volume just because there's nothing to buy, <laughs> which I thought was a funny take. And obviously, uh, obviously, the complete 
opposite end of the spectrum there. Um, <sighs> I mean, this is the argument though. This is like the question when you look at real estate as an asset class. So on one hand, you have interest rates going up. So the cost to own a home, to purchase a home goes up dramatically as interest rates go up. But at the same time, you have not enough supply of homes for people who want to buy. And so, and mainly I'd argue it's, it's due to like regulatory issues for builders being able to build new homes. Like there's space obviously in America to do it, particularly in California. And it's really hard to get through all the loopholes to, to build a house. So it, it kind of uh, dissuades builders from building new homes in those States. At any yeah. point you have low supply rising costs. So which one is going to win out in terms of swaying the price of, of real estate? Yeah, it's, it, it feels hard to talk about um, real estate as a as an investment class on a on a pod like this because it's it's so market dependent, especially when you're talking about like should I buy a like a primary home? I mean, we all we all live in California by the coast, and it's sort of like the essence of like limited supply and extreme nimbyism, right? So you you can't get a house near me like my neighborhood. There's nothing for sale, right? And there's no land to build anything. Um, so you know, which is very different than if you're out in you know some areas of Texas or Nevada, right? Where you can just you just kind of expand outward forever to some extent in in, in certain areas, right? It's a tough thing to wrap my head around. I mean, I've been. I, I I was thinking recently, like I don't know, should I should I sell my house? Should I take the should I take the free thirty percent as the world's about to explode and just sit on my sit on my hands? Like it, it it's something I thought about. Like I I am struggling to see how real estate prices can just keep going up like this, especially if like rates go higher, right? Like this year, the thirty year has just been the the, the yield has been going through the absolute moon at like a crazy pace. You know, I, I tried to get a refi done earlier this year and at like 3% and, and couldn't get the bank to agree with my crypto stuff, unfortunately, <laughs> and didn't get it done. And Big now spread. rates are like above, they're like above five, which is nuts. I mean, that was, you know, you're talking about tens of thousands of dollars a year and in differences on those rates. Um, that's got to filter into, to prices. It's so I, I, people just, People have to run out of money at some point, right? Yeah. Like people just can't keep like what what the hell is <laughs> I don't know if you have any insight into this, Eric. But like I think every everything I'm out. looking at just it make it makes it seem like all the money's kind of drying up now. And I'm I'm struggling to see where the demand is gonna come from, be it for real estate, but especially for non scarce assets like like stonks. You know, there's plenty of those to go around. Anybody can buy those and who, who's going to buy those? I don't, I don't know. I don't know. So I don't know. Yeah. I don't know if you've, you've given any thought to this. Well, I think even the, the people that would qualify for uh, big loans before, or, you know, could, would have like a, a big asset base before has probably been lopped recently. And, you know, I think that demand has to come down, you know, regardless of what happens to, with supply. Yeah. My, yeah. My biggest worry is that as inflation goes up and obviously rent is part of inflation, but other parts of people's lives, you know, their, their car loan, groceries, everything else goes up, you know, just like rents are tough to. So Nick's tough. thinking about it in a different way. I'm thinking about demand to buy a place. Like Nick's thinking about renter demand. Renter demand is going to go higher. I think that's true. 
but to demand to buy homes or buy multifamily and stuff like the buyers, that, that demand's going to dry. So we have mutual friends who have been looking to buy a home for like the last year, year and a half, and have put in 20 plus offers. And they just constantly get beat out by some of these all cash offers above asking price. And what it seems to be is like people moving from bigger cities, so like New York to San Diego, uh, LA or San Francisco to San Diego. And so maybe in some of these, like, um, uh, just crazy people moving to like, most of the outflow is going to, you know, Texas and, and Florida and whatnot. But maybe it's people who've sold bigger bags in other cities, moving to smaller cities and maybe more tax advantage cities. And even though prices are up in that area, they're going to, um, to them, you know, they have cash to just make make an offer. That's the only thing I could think that keeps up. But outside of that, it's tough to imagine like where is all this money coming from, and who who's going to continue to to pay these um, prices? I mean. You know, one thing that certainly helped the whole situation, which is crazy to me, is that even to this day, the Fed is buying mortgages, right? And so, you know, the the mortgage rates of over five percent, but they're still being, uh, you know, muted down by open market operations by the Fed, which is like fascinating that they're still even doing that. But we're going to see like a lot of liquidity take out of market, so we might see like a really sharp move um, in interest rates and then housing prices. Um, you know, in, in 2008, I think whenever the crash happened, there was a little different because we had actual, like almost like mortgage fraud, people with ridiculous credit scores getting multiple mortgages. And we don't have that, but, um, you know, it'll, it'll be, Is it, isn't it like tough. really similar though? Like didn't, don't we, we basically effectively have government policy that artificially bolstered demand for these things. And then we had the government policy sort of come around and cause this like increase of rates, which, you know, kind of, but like, I I guess it's a little different now because you could argue that maybe everybody out here isn't sitting around with like arms, right? Like the adjustable rates or like interest onlys, which is really locked in 30 at the bottom. That'd be nice. Yeah, so I, I don't know if we're gonna have as many like forced sellers this time around, but but like I, I I have seen a lot of stats. Like people people have been tapping their houses for equity pretty hard totally. over the last you know few years, um, more more than that. So that that's a little bit that game concerning. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, I think two uh, like threat vectors for the economy in terms of debt is securities at like backed lines of credit and HELOCs like home equity lines of credit are two threat vectors where people are taking uh, debt on inflated asset prices at very, very low interest rates. And those are typically adjustable. Like I don't, I don't, I don't know too much about the home equity lines of credit, but I know that most of them are adjustable. And then the securities backed lines of credit are almost always adjustable. So like those are, you know, you know, when you have someone borrowing against a stock portfolio and stocks go down big time, then you have, like you mentioned, literal forced selling uh, in that situation. Is that what Elon What's did? It? Is that what Elon did to, to he's, buy Twitter? He's probably, that's probably what he's doing is borrowing against his stock. Elon, but you're borrowing it. I think his liquidation price on Tesla stock is like $535 or something. <laughs> I saw it. Like I thought I thought it was like 700 low. 
That that was kind of scary. What, what is the 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 price? Isn't that far above that from yeah, <laughs> what like I saw? Eight, like I'm, eight I'm, I'm sure he can get. I think he can get liquidity from elsewhere, but like but, that would you know that would be that would be kind of wild for for listeners. They could see how this turns in a downward spiral. Spiral. Let's say Tesla goes down like thirty percent. Elon has a loan against his Tesla stock, and J.P. Morgan and Morgan Stanley comes in and say, "Hey." We need a. Uh, you're going to mar- margin call you because your collateral is now going to be less than how much you know you borrowed from us, and so he's forced to sell, and he has to sell Tesla stock, and then it goes down even more. And so that's just definitely one area to look at over the next few years is as these adjustable rates, which are typically off like one month LIBOR, the new SOFA rate, as those creep up, and they for sure will not just creep up but escalate over the next year. You know what that does to to forced equity sellers, um, but I don't I don't know if we're going to see the same thing in the housing market. To your point, Stephen, like forced selling and spirals downward. Yeah, I mean, I guess I'm still more concerned with the 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 stock market and the bond market. I, I've kind of just mentally committed to owning my house, and whatever happens happens at this point. You know, I can make the payments on it. It is what it is. It would suck, but like I, you know, I, I am sitting on a lot of cash, and I'm trying to. I'm concerned at like how bearish I am, given how bearish everybody else is, right? And I'm I'm, I'm trying to make a bull case, right? And 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 I am looking at some stuff, and it's it's kind of crazy, right? Like Facebook is trading at 174. The stock was 381 dollars. In September, well, it had a big pop uh, in after hours today with uh, earnings. Back up a little bit, yeah. So, so like, are we? Is 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 this going to be something we look back on ten years from now and be like, wow, we didn't we didn't buy Facebook down over down sixty percent? We're all sitting around like waiting for the bottom to quote unquote fall out. To that point, Stephen, I was looking at Facebook just like some stats today. Like it was trading at 13 times earnings when Procter & Gamble is trading at like 37 times or something. So like- And you subtract the cash out of there, Eric, and it's even trading at lower earnings, right? So- And this is still a good business. This, This business like prints money. Yeah, like I'm I'm struggling a lot because I, I do feel like we might be getting into the time when like we maybe we should be maybe we should be deal shopping. Um, I do see a lot more deals in the stock market though than I I think I see in crypto. Like I don't like I don't know if Ethereum at twenty nine hundred dollars is is a deal. It's not that cheap. Like ETH can go down another fifty percent from here, no problem. But like I have a hard time believing Facebook's going to go down another fifty percent from here. So look, I think the problem with all of this, right. Is like we, we have like a cycle within a cycle. And I think all of us realize we're at the end of this longer term, like big boy debt cycle. Right. Yep. But like timing is really important. It might not implode right now. Like it might implode the next cycle. Like the fed might have enough room to send this thing back up somehow and softly on the plane one more time. They may have enough enough bullets left in the chamber to do that. And if we're all sitting here thinking that this is it, this is the big unwind, 
you know, as the NASDAQ's off like 25% on the year and we're waiting for minus 50%, like we could miss like a, some pretty crazy rallies. Like if, if, if this ends up being like, we're all saying like this time is different, right? But if this time isn't different, if this was like all the other times where the Fed announces a rate hike, the market sort of panics, but then it basically prices in the rate hike and then actually trades up while the Fed is hiking for for the most part and then kind of melts up at the end. Like if, if we miss that, I don't know, we could, we could miss we could miss like a 100% move in stocks. We could miss like a two or 300% move in crypto. It's 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 really driving me crazy because I I, I see I see Bitcoin ETH doing three hundred percent from here. I also see it doing like negative sixty, negative seventy from here if it is you know that that time. And I, I don't so, I don't know. I, I really am at a loss right now. For so, for so listeners, then like <laughs> we, we don't we don't know where things are going to go, and we're kind of this Goldilocks zone where like risk to the downside, but still upside. So how do you, how do you play it when you obviously don't know? I mean, Steven, you, you talked about in the discord about, you know, you're not necessarily looking at how much money you can make, but you're all about managing risk. And I imagine you do that as a poker player and also Eric, you know, when you're managing other people's money, that's like a key thing you're taking account. So is the, is this like an Occam's razor thing where the simplest answer is just to dollar cost average on the way down? Well, um, I think there's or, actually an interesting question here that you've reminded me of. And I, I was actually thinking about this yesterday. Um, is there actually a good reason for normal people, i.e. non-professional investors who spend all their time thinking about markets? Is there any reason for people to hold cash? It, like, especially like right, right now, right? Like any any cash at all, is there, or like more than ten percent, right? Like realistically speaking, we're we're looking at the market way down. Everybody's max bearish. The sky is falling. Crypto's down. You know, it, at least retraced like over fifty percent from highs. I think still today is like close to fifty percent from highs. Some coins are down seventy five percent. You know, you know, some coins are down like 90, but like even so there's some decent coins down 70, 75%. Like should normal people just bite the bullet and just, just buy because it's, we're, we're down a lot and it, it might be the bottom. And if worst case, like five years from now, 10 years from now, it's going to go up. Like, is it, is it worth, is it even worth thinking about, I guess? Well, I mean, Steven, you post in the discord two, two things like stable coins as a percentage of total, total crypto market cap is going up. I mean, people are going into more stable coins and then DXY, the dollar is on like this parabolic move. Um, and so basically people are finding safety in the dollar and maybe that's the only good reason they have. And so it's happening. Um, the question is like, will it break trend and, and people stop, you know, holding the dollar as like this safety asset and moving into stable coins. Like we've all done recently. Um, Outside of that, I mean, like at least stable coins can offer you like a decent damn yield where I, I don't know what you would do with actual fiat, you know, like what what are you gonna what are you gonna do with that? You're gonna lose eight and a half percent, you know, more call it like more. Losing more. more. You're gonna lose if like a like, percent a month. 
Maybe it, it's it's more like it, it might be it might actually be 15, 20 percent right now. It, it, it really is just a gigantic clusterfuck. Right. It's like, OK, we can hold on to this cash and it's it's going to lose. Like the government's telling you it's losing nine percent, right? So it's probably it's probably losing twenty. And I think if you take a look around you recently, gas prices, home prices, healthcare, tuition, like all this stuff is insane, right? Like your your money's melting away. But also <laughs> everything is going down. So it's making like the, the cash look pretty good. It, it it's it I can't imagine just sitting around, I mean, I, I guess I can because this is what I do all day. But like as like a normal person just sitting around thinking like, what the hell do I do? I think at this point you just, I, I think at this point you just capitulate, right? Yeah, it could go lower. But even if it does go lower, like I think it'll go up by the time your retirement rolls around anyway. And like, what are you, what are you going to do? Sit around and try to pick the bottom? Like I was looking at, I was looking at our, our, our boy Ben Cohen's like risk metrics for the S&P. And he's usually like going all in and like the 0.7s, like 0.78, 0.79. It was like 0.49 the other day when I looked at it. Oof. That's insane. Is it really? Like, wow. That's like, that's like uh, you know, that was around like the COVID stuff, right? So, so yeah. which, which is like a longer term thing, right? He's looking at that on these very long horizons. Obviously, the next three months, like sure, we could go down way more. But like if you zoom way out. Yeah. Unless you think the world is just absolutely going to explode and we're going to go like Mad Max, it's like getting to the point where it's worth considering. I think just just getting. Can I share some in. numbers with you guys? I saw a chart today from yeah. um, it was S and P returns um, from 1978 through 1982. You know, this was like the hyperinflation, like Volcker era, and mm-hmm. during this time, inflation went from like 6.6 percent up to it spiked up to 13.3 percent. And then they they rose Fed funds rate from seven point nine percent up to twelve point nine percent. So that they like they combated inflation by using the Fed's fund rate. Well, um, I mean Volcker, I mean correct me if I'm wrong. I think at one point he he jacked it up to to twenty percent, and that's that's from yeah. like an average of like eleven percent. So like towards the end of his part, and it, it definitely created a two year recession. Like it's not like a you know unemployment also shot through the roof during that time. And so, I mean, well, the Fed, the, the the Fed would do that today if it created a recession. Well, here's the SP return for sure. In 78, 6.6% positive. Like these, these are all positive. In 79, it was 18%. In 80, oh. 32%. What are you quoting? Sorry. Uh, S&P 500 uh, returns, like on a percentage basis. Okay. And then in 81, it actually went negative, negative 5%. But then 82, positive 21%. 83, positive 22%. So I guess the point is, it's like what Steven's saying, like it can look bad and like prices, like the market can go up. So DCA in, right? Like, I mean, like hold, like in theory, like once the market prices in all the information, like we should, we should go up after that. Right. If it like truly, if, if it prices in all the bad news and there's no more unknown bad news, like yeah, it makes sense why you would have these like dramatic drawdowns, but then after that, you're just you're just good and you go back up again. Like if there's no more surprises, the problem with the world today is like there are black swans. Like, I don't even know if they're black swans; they're probably like gray swans at this point, right? Like the food crisis is is going to be a doozy, right? We may end up in a situation where you've got countries like Sri Lanka, right, that are just like we can't afford to feed people, so we're just going to default on our debt, 
right? Because otherwise people start, like people might be making those choices. Like the U.S. and the Western world is going to be the bidder of last resort for like and set the floor price for all the food, right? Because for us, like even if the our cost of food goes up 10x, it's still actually for a lot of people in the U.S., it, it, it's not going to completely impoverish them, right? It'll be brutal, but like versus like other countries, right? They literally, they'll just die, right? In the U.S., people will have a hard time, but people can substitute. They can move to smaller places. They can sell items they don't need. They can do all sorts of substitution to, to pay for food and to pay for energy, right? But like they're, we're already scraping the bottom of the barrel in some of these other areas. Like people can't go any lower. They can't pay any more for oil. They can't pay any more for gas. They can't pay any more for, for, for food, right? So that's something that may run around like l- later this year, next year, because there's this delay in like the wheat planting seasons, right? And we also have this energy crisis going on where, you know, outside of the US, where thankfully we're, we're basically energy independent, but a lot of other places aren't because they, right. in a lot of areas have sort of pursued this utopian sort of like green energy policy that was a little just just completely didn't take into account the realities of the existing world right can't just like flip a switch and suddenly all of europe's powered by solar solar just because we think it should be that way in in 20 years well today europe is you know buying natural gas you know from russia or they have to buy liquid natural gas to, to ship it over from the US, but that in and of itself is like more expensive, requires all this refining. So all these prices are going through the roof there. The currency markets are like kind of like a release valve for a lot of things. Like to, the Japanese yen is, <laughs> is, is, is currently in free fall and there's going to be a lot of other currencies like this that are just going to, that, that's always like the, the first thing that, that, that kind of goes when, when something unsustainable happens in these these economies um we've got like triple b rated corporate debt a lot of it that one which i think is like scary. super borderline some of those could get down great like i just like I, I, the fed will let the stock market die i think but they can't let the debt markets die like because if the debt markets start dying then we could have this like insane contagion domino effect that could really truly blow everything up, right? So to your point, Stephen, like in the Discord, I, I put this tweet that JP Morgan struggling to offload Carvana debt even at 10.5% yield. So when you mm. see the, the credit market freezing up, that's when the Fed actually was like, starts to reconsider their whole, their whole strategy. Um, to kind of cap off this macro discussion, I have one question for, for both of you, because I've been thinking about this today, is next week, I think the Fed is scheduled to have a meeting and mark a potential rate increase. So my question is, if they do 50 basis points, does the market run off that because it's not 75? Or do they get scared off that because it's 50 and then 50, 50 basis points I, come I, again? I could be wrong on this, but I, I think the market was pricing in like something close to 90% of like 50. So I, I think rallied. 50 is the... I, I find it hard to... I find it hard to believe the market's going to tank too hard, right? Like I I would be really tempted to make a buy at least for like a short-term trade if they hike 50 and we dip a little bit lower, especially if people start kind of we're at the level right now on stonks where people might be like kind of panic selling or and then we might have some forced selling. And that might actually be a good 
time to get in because if you have people actually start to panic and, and, and offload, but, but in reality, we're just doing what's already priced in. Like the market is pricing in. So like what, like right. three, three or three and a half percent federal funds rate now, which, which I don't think they can really get to. I mean, the 30 year is at 2.9% right. right now. I, I just think that the whole bond market breaks at those levels. Like we can't pay the national debt for like you guys are making me at, bullish at those levels. It's exciting. Um, <laughs> All right, Eric. So, what's your take on fifty base points? You see, bounce I think we, I think we rally on fifty, and uh, the only way that we don't is if they give some kind of forward guidance that they're going to accelerate or you know really get uh, hawkish even more even more than what we're expecting. But okay, yeah, I think yeah, I, I, think, I think, think it's important for people to understand like what's what's basically happening here is the fed doesn't really want to jack rates up a ton because they sort of know it's going to blow everything up so what they're doing is trying to like jawbone everything down right they're trying to basically talk the market into self-tightening which i think by some metrics it 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 kind of is doing but for most of the year right i think the the, the s&p the nasdaq i think stocks like haven't really fully believed the the fed like I, I think we are still playing this like enormous game of chicken right now where like the fed is kind of talking a game and the market's sort of they're they're shifting the probability of their bet more towards the fed actually doing stuff but 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 is still really not like if i think if the market actually believed the fed was going to do what they were going to do i i, I think we would just lose another 30 percent in, in stocks like pretty, I mean, I'm pretty still quickly, seeing, but we haven't. I'm still seeing unprofitable, large cap shit tech stocks that are trading uh, at 40 times sales. I mean, we talked yeah. we talked about Facebook I, is yeah. cheap, but like there's some shitty ones out there still. I, I talked to a friend, he's like, uh, you know, let's call it like an eight figure stock trader. And he kind of made a good argument for, you know, you were seeing some good earnings this week. Um, there's going to be some positive news in the next week. Fed's going to announce 50 base points. It's going to be good. People were like a little scared of 75, but we got 50. Then it's going to be like the fool's the fool's time. You know, it's going to be a bounce. And that's where fool's going to think like, okay, we're on our way all the way back fully up from here on out. And he thinks that's like the sucker uh, moment to kind of like buy in on that like mini rally on some of these earnings. And, um, you know, the, the Fed funds only get lifting 50 base points. So um, and then, you know, maybe more pain thereon. I think we could see definitely pain in the short term. What I'm thinking is that like something's going to break around like the fall um, and the Fed is not going to be as aggressive and we don't end up at where we're predicting at the end of the year. But there is that little likelihood that like Powell becomes Volcker and just says, screw it. Like, I'm going to do whatever it takes. I'm going to break the economy as long as we get inflation back below, you know, two and a half, three percent. Um, yeah, I understand that, but I, I just don't think I don't think it'll happen. I, I think the because I think the the Fed's priority right is inflation, but their number one priority is to not let the whole system blow up. Right. So I think and the Fed the, will, there's going to be political pressure at that point. Like we got yeah. midterms coming up in November. Like there by the way, I just pulled up the uh, Fed probabilities for you know six days from now. Ninety six point five percent of a, a seventy five. To 100 target rate, and we're wow. So yeah, 50. I think Eric, you're right. So, I think bounce on 50. I'm I, I like that bet. I think no, no, that like that to me is saying that like 50 is like priced in, like with a 96.5 percent right. probability. 
So that's great. So like I have a hard time seeing us really bouncing that much on something that's priced in so much. But you so said ninety seven percent probability for a seventy five basis point hike. Is that what you said? Well, the current rate. Th- th- this isn't the hike. This is like the the the. the oh, sorry. That's the, the end range. fund fund rate. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So let's see what happens next week. We'll definitely have that for fodder for next week's podcast to see where we end up um, by, by next Wednesday, I believe. Um, so we talked, we promised to talk about a little goal setting. So a little life alpha alpha setting. I'm kind of like a, a little uh, rigorous when it comes to my goal setting. Steven, I think you admitted before we started recording that you are just going to listen during this time because yeah just just so everybody out there doesn't feel like really bad about themselves as you like (laughs) talk about your seven-year calendar and how you check it every day and meditate on it at tea you know after lunch and and you've got it tattooed on your ankle like your 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 vision board for the next 10 years I, i don't i don't do i don't do any of this like you were talking to me about this and i was like yeah like i this is probably bad. Like I'm not advocating that people do this. I think this may be a blind spot of mine, but like, I don't, I don't really even have like a defined goal for this year. And I think that's maybe a byproduct of my life, which tends to be just chaos. And like, I I haven't been able to predict my life like one year out for the last 12 years running. Like it's just always in some new crazy location. So I think I I just sort of, I punted on it because I felt bad that I was always, uh, failing on this stuff, but in, I, I think in like really short horizons, like I tried to think about what am I going to do the, like today, you know, this I week, mean, maybe. By all measures, you're doing a great job. So your system's working. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I want to hear Nick's though. What, what's your, what's your setup? What's your framework? Yeah. I mean, like, uh, I mean, Eric, we've shared this stuff before. Like uh, I, I kind of like stick to pretty rigorous goal, uh, quarterly goal setting. I have them going back probably like, I mean, I don't know. I could probably look in this folder here, but like 10 years, I could probably go back and look at, you know, each quarter's goal setting. And it's a pretty simple structure. So in this structure, um, we're looking at like what the result we want is, what's the immense immeasurable pleasure you're going to achieve by, by, or get by achieving that goal. And maybe what's the immense immeasurable pain you're going to get by not achieving that goal. And then the massive action plan, like what's the thing you're going to do in order to achieve that result. And so I think that the key is that the, the thing that you're focusing your work on and your time on is not the goal. It's actually a system in order to achieve that goal. So like the easiest example is like, let's say you want to lose weight your goal isn't to lose weight. Your goal is to implement a system like, uh, I don't know, eat one meal a day or work out five, five days a week. And that's what you actually measure yourself against, not losing X number of pounds or clocking it at some body fat percentage. So the massive action plan is the the part that you, the system, not, not the goal, but the system you measure your daily activities against. And you can kind of, you know, rate it like green if you're on it, yellow if you need improvement and red if you, for some reason you decide to cancel it. And so those are typically like the three areas that I, I break them out into the, the result, the pleasure, and then the massive action plan, which is typically like a system focused. And then it breaks out into like uh, different life categories. So like, you know, these can be up for anyone's choosing, but like physical health is one, your mental health is another relationships, 
Um, I added this one this quarter, like time, how you actually spend your time can be a goal, like a result you want, pleasure you achieve, and then a, a system you put in place to like achieve the right time allocation. Um, for me, like the active businesses, the businesses that we're operating is the, is the most important one, usually the most detailed. So that's a section. And then investments and finances one. And then some people like to put like some kind of like celebration or contribution, like basically fun. How do you have fun, you know, cause you can, you can definitely skip fun if you focus, um, in these other categories. So basically each category has got that like result, the pleasure, and then the, um, you know, system or massive action plan, if you will. So the idea is like, once the quarter approaches, you know, brainstorm, ask yourself a bunch of questions about like what you really want to do in all these categories. And then like dial in a system that's like reasonable that you think you can do and keep it limited in how many things you can do in each category. And then, um, you know, look at it every so often, like daily would be ideal. I certainly don't follow it every day, but I try to. And then, um, you know, are you following the system or not is like the the day-to-day thing that you do. So I don't know, that's the system I've been following for the last like so many years. And I find it really helpful to remind myself, like, I don't know if you guys get this, but like you wake up day, open up the computer and you're like, what am I going to do today? And it's very easy to get lost in a billion other distractions. Like basically the world is filled of distractions, but really there's probably like one or two things you could do in a day that will actually move you forward and get you progress on your goals. So like, I find at least having the sheet when you wake up and open the laptop, if that's the first thing you look at, it's like, okay, I can center myself and like, what's really important. I'm going to make impact. So is it just a question on that. Like, is it only quarterly or do you have like a 10 year one as well? Or like, uh, mm, I mean, like I will say some of the results that are in the quarterly are like results I hope to achieve long in the future, but that's like the result portion of it. Um, and so maybe the, 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 the quarter basis is more about the system that you're going to fall for this quarter. And maybe you're going to try something out for the next three months on a system to achieve that. So, yeah, I'd say the goals tend to be a little longer than a quarter. And what's interesting is like, I have all this like spreadsheets going back like 10 years. And what I found is like, um, you know, the goals that you set, sometimes you don't give yourself enough time and they're probably pretty big. But what you find is that you eventually get there and you may not get there in the way that you originally envisioned. And it may have taken like a quarter extra or maybe two years extra to get there. But like if they're consistently there and you have some way of at least monitoring yourself and, and kind of coming up with ideas and systems how to get there, you eventually get to the, the bigger 10-year goals. Um, and that's what at least I'm hoping for the next 10 years. That's a really cool framework, man. Would you um, feel comfortable sharing that? Uh, at least the framework in, in our discord or like sharing yeah, it with, I mean, with yeah, I definitely have some like Google docs that are blank that are like yeah. just the, the empty template that I've shared, um, with friends before. Um, and so happy to share it in the discord and like, obviously people can copy paste it into their own thing and, and like, you know, put their own personal details in there. Um, some of you guys have frameworks, some of you don't, but like, I'd be curious. One question for you guys is, do you guys believe in sharing your goals with other people. Cause I have a pretty strong take on this, but I'd be curious, like, Eric, do you believe in like, you have a goal? Do you believe in like sharing it? Even if it's with like maybe Mina or like even close friends, like this is my, my goal. Like I want to run a marathon, for example. Man, I, I kind of go back and forth on it. And like by, by practice, I can tell you that I don't 
on the biggest stuff, you know, I, I don't on the biggest stuff, but like on, on smaller things, I'm very happy to, and I get some accountability out of it. Um, you know, if I have a goal to like make a smoothie in the morning, you know, I I can like tell that to Mina and she'll be like, Hey, have you made your smoothie? Um, but that's uh, different than sort of like the long-term vision that I don't necessarily like communicate. Explicitly. Yeah, I'm I'm the opposite extreme as you. Like when I, I mean, I, I mo- my life is mostly chaos. I I used to have this like incredible organization system, right? It it was it was so good, but the the problem with me and my brain is that like I just get really into one thing, and it's all I can think about, and then it's I just get I just get tunnel vision. It's just like who I am, and I, I am completely unable to multitask or have any sort of like balance in my life, right? So what ended up happening for me was that I realized like I had this like unbelievable organizational system, but I was spending like 35 hours a week just perfecting my organizational system or making it even better because I get so obsessed with the organizational system and I just stopped doing anything. So, you know, this is probably not for everybody out there, but like if, if that's like not who you are as a person, like it just it just it won't work for you. But for some people, it'd be like really, really good. I'm actually the opposite view on the goals thing, which is like when I actually do have like a goal, I not only make it very public, but I, I also always place money on it. Right. Like whenever mm-hmm. I'm like, I need to stop drinking for a month, I immediately text my buddy Luke and I'm like, all right. Uh, I'm not drinking for a month, $100 Venmo to you for every drink I have, you know, and then that's great. I never drink except for one time I lost a bet on like the 30th day of the month at like 11 p.m. because I have absolutely no self-control. But that's a that's a story for another that's day. close enough. <laughs> <laughs> like that could also be your superpower, Stephen, like obs- like the people I find most successful in life are the people who like obsess about one thing, whether it's like a business or like a health goal, like it just like consumes their life, but they end up being like that becomes their craft. And then they funnel that into like, you know, next level success. So I don't know. It's probably your superpower at the same time, you know, you know, you end up like uh, only focusing on one thing at a time. But it's Thank good. you. That's a very, it's a very positive spin. It's uh, completely useless right now where I don't have a focus. <laughs> so my superpower is multitasking and doing absolutely nothing for the last, you know, couple of months, I feel like <laughs> that's what I've been doing. Um, but I, I, I look forward to actually uh, finding the thing soon and, and, and getting back on the wagon. So I'll, I'll take the opposite take of like sharing, because I think sharing uh, goals basically provides you this um, preemptive dopamine response that you don't want and that you get from sharing your goals. So like, I think the best example is like, I'm going to run a marathon. You tell your buddies, Hey guys, I'm going to run the marathon this year. And they go, that's awesome. Congratulations. Like so good. Like, that's great. Your health is going to get better. And like you get this dopamine response and basically you get X percent of the dopamine response that you would get from running the marathon way ahead of before you even put in the work. And so by sharing your goals, I think you get this, like, uh, I don't know, un like it's, it's not an unworthy bit of dopamine by people congratulating you on your goal. Like, Hey, I set up a, I set up a home gym, right? So I, I just joined this new gym. Great job. Awesome. And then you kind of, uh, subconsciously subverted your, your like effort in this thing. And, and what may be better is to keep it to yourself until you actually achieve it. And then you can tell your closest, you know, confidence of like, Hey, I, I achieved a goal today. 
and you I, save I all get your where you're coming you. from there. It sounds very like Jocko Willick to me. Um, <laughs> I can actually see why that would work for you because you are like a special type of, uh, I think, disciplined and Zen person that that, that I am not. Uh, the tears on my pillowcase would tell you otherwise, but yeah, sure. That would never, that would never in a a thousand years work for me. Um, and I'm sure a lot of other people think that, but there's probably a lot of people who are like, yeah, that's great. That's genius. That would totally work for me. You have betting, you have betting involved. You put money at risk, which is different than what I'm saying. Cause like, you know, powerful motivator. Yeah. But it's not even the money. It's the shame of having to pay the person the money. Like, like paying a hundred dollars for a drink that like I already had to overpay like $25 for with a tip, you know, at some stupid hipster cocktail bar is, is, is lame, but it's not going to like, it's not going to like really demotivate me. The, the real motivation is that coupled with the shame of having everybody have to see my Venmo and like my, my buddy having to know that I am so weak and useless and feeble, right? That's really the, the motivator. So without that social shame, I feel like I'm just not as, as good. And that's, um, that's just my perspective. Eric, do you have any like goals or like you break it down to to do's on a daily basis or do you have a uh, lot big term goals? Do you break it down? What's your kind of take? So on what it? I'm, I think what I'm good at is doing uh, like, I try to build these habits and I'll do them in like 30 day bursts. So if, if, if my habit that I'm trying to build is like uh, making a smoothie after the gym in the morning, like um, what I'll do, I have this like calendar on my desk and I, I put like a, a colored dot on the days that I do what I'm trying to do. And then uh, I, you know, I want to see that calendar just filled up with, you know, like purple dots by the end of it. And that's worked for me over time. You know, like I started with like, I want to cook some dinners. And then like, I, I went into that and now I'm like learning how to cook and, you know, like it's uh that's how I do it. You think you get momentum from the visual, like, uh, momentum absolutely like you see and, and connecting those dots and you don't want to break your trend you don't want line. To break the chain you, you want <laughs> you don't want to see just big empty gaps yeah all right cool um does anyone know armand's system that we can kind of like talk about while he's not here and he's traipsing around the world from egypt to greece while we're slugging away on this podcast he gave me uh, he gave me a good one about he's, like the he's year best he's best talked that on his own uh yeah he, time, he can think. talk a lot about his like year end probably youth. probably would really like to so he gave, he gave me a framework about year end review, but I'll, I'll let him go into that. But it's, it's been pretty helpful too. All right. I think we're going to demand that in the discord for yeah. him whenever he gets online. It's probably like 3am for him, wherever he is. But I think we want to hear that from him. We certainly miss him on this podcast. Um, all right, let's, let's wrap it up, boys. I think that was, that was good. We covered a lot and nice. um, hopefully see you guys in the discord. Say hi. And uh, yeah, we got a lot to talk about stuff that we talked about on this pod but you know there's a lot of news coming up this week so let's talk about it together and navigate it together um that was fun boys great job all right See you soon. adios Later. amigos bye all right you little dgens that's it for today i hope you enjoyed head to alfalfapod.com for all of our links and socials and if you want some real alpha head to collectiveshift.io and join thousands of members getting the latest insights and alerts from a team of expert research analysts all there to help you create more wealth and freedom through crypto. And don't forget to use our discount code ALFALFA for 50% off your first month. Until next time, see you then. Peace.